text, Audacious Deceivers, Part 2, diving in and so carrying on from last Sunday, but also just a a slight change as you shift into uh, verse 17. Uh, I was thinking of an an introduction to kind of get the idea of who they are, and I was uh, thinking back to when Heather and I were at my father-in-law's church. Uh, They always had a time each year when they would receive uh, giving commitments from the people uh, something I think they used to help them set their mission and general budget. But I remember my father-in-law always purposely um, never asked for names. He always made sure we're not looking to follow up on you or track you down. He wasn't going to check up with people individually and make sure they had reached their quota uh, for the year. But he did have a mark to put your age. Because as nice as it is to get multiple 40000 a year commitments, uh, if they're all coming from the fourth and sixth grade class... You recognize that as well-intentioned as it's going to be, you're not going to see that money. Uh, It is ultimately an empty promise. And in a much more sinister way, the audacious deceivers are filled with empty promises. Uh, What they live and teach will never deliver uh, what they say. Uh, They will never deliver what they're promoting. Instead, they'll deliver the exact opposite, which is death and punishment, a reality that Peter makes clear in this next portion about false teachers. Now, we've learned quite a bit about these liars, and I think it's helpful uh, for us to understand and use terminology like that because we tend to soften everything. Uh, We tend to want to make everyone feel okay. And we're going to close out uh, with a quote Uh, from John MacArthur in the sermon, and and he says this, we need to expose false teachers, uh, not coddle them. And so I call them what they are. They're liars. Uh, They're pretentious. We learn that. They assume authority and importance they do not possess. They're perverse, twisted and wicked in the everyday practice of their lives. They have a gain-focused priority. That is their premium. That is what they want. And they seem to be constantly talking Yet what they say is just empty words because nothing substantive comes from their preaching. And that's what you look at in verse 17 through 19 is what they're saying. They're making promises that never come true. They're giving their prophecies, which are definitely not from God, nor do they point to God. So these verses say, These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with the tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage." And I want you to understand something about them because the wells without water is a significant statement. And understand this, they are bankrupt. And that means they're void of life and void of the life giver. Uh, In the Gospel of John chapter 4, we find Jesus talking to the woman at the well, someone to whom Jesus speaks with about life-giving water. And he says this in John 4, 13 through 14. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, and he's speaking of the well water where she was coming out to draw water because of her lifestyle. She came at a different time than everyone else. And so she had a divine orchestrated appointment to talk with the Savior. Uh, He says, Of this water shall 
thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. But here Peter is saying that the false teachers are not wells with water. They do not, in other words, have life in them. They are devoid of life. These are wells without water, meaning they do not have the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And so as he talks about them and their doctrine, and I want you to recognize that Peter is not being soft here. Peter is coming at false teaching with a very direct attack against them. And that's why as we look at the close of this false teaching or audacious deceivers, we're going to close with the idea that we confront false teaching in a very forceful manner, that we are not to coddle them for political or social reasons, but instead, not in in a violent way, but in a firm way, we do not give them audience. Why? They don't have the Holy Spirit. And nothing humanity gives that is devoid of the Holy Spirit will bring any eternal good. I know there's people that don't know Christ that do good things, and these good things bring relief physically, and they'll bring relief at times socially, and there's things we do to help politically and to change people's life here. I just want us as believers to pause one second and realize this. Those are good things, but after 90, 100, 70 years when they die and face an eternity without Christ, the fact that they had a slightly better life here is going to be absolutely meaningless to them in eternity. And as false teachers are speaking and devoid of the Holy Spirit, we have to recognize that they're bringing no eternal good, no matter what social good they bring. They don't help the long-term or the real situation. I put as a side note for believers, oftentimes we think we can do something of eternal significance apart from the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And we recognize in the false teachers yet another warning as we work and serve our Savior and our Master that we do nothing outside of His power that will result in anything that is eternal. The false teachers give the impression of a coming and welcomed rain. And if you think of living in an arid climate, that's an important component. So as, as you see rain coming, you think, well, we, we need rain. Uh, we might be sitting here and saying, we've had enough rain. We don't need more rain. Uh, if you lived in California for a while, they're always begging for rain. For years, they're begging for rain, and now they're complaining because they get too much rain. But either way, there's always this idea, if you are lacking moisture, or you live in a climate that's dry, you need rain. And so what Peter is saying is they're that promised look of rain, but really they end up just being a fog that comes through that does no good. In other words, what he's saying very blatantly is they're a fraud. And I want us to notice the vernacular. They don't have God. They're, they're, they're devoid of the Holy Spirit. They're lifeless, bankrupt. And then he's coming out and saying they're a fraud. They're a lie. They're a trick. They're not going to bring anything that brings life at all. And then it says they are set for the mist of darkness. Or another way of saying it is the gloom of utter darkness. And what Peter is saying is they're destined for eternal punishment. They're destined for an eternity in hell. And he's not pulling back from that concept. These false teachers are bankrupt. Yet 
Interestingly, the emptiness still draws a crowd. I was thinking of an illustration. They're like certain foods we love to eat, empty calories that accomplish nothing good physically, yet we seem to keep eating them and enjoying them, and they do absolutely no good. Because their emptiness does not seem to hamper their charm. So from they are bankrupt, we find that they are also charismatic. They speak great swelling words of vanity. They have charisma. They stand up and they attract a crowd. I put here, they speak with pizzazz. They bring an oratorical flair that impressed the hearers. If you want to think of a comparison, they're polished politicians, not the ones that look sleazy. I'm talking about the ones that, that pull you in, that you say, wow, they're going to do something. They're so, they're, they connect with the crowd. They're motivational speakers. They move you through a range of emotions and possibilities. Their presentation is top-notch. It's loaded with emotions and catchphrases that appeal to so many, yet ultimately are words of vanity. And by words of vanity, he means words that lack moral sincerity. They're just words that are floating out there to manipulate the emotions. Ultimately, they say just foolish, boastful words. But here's the the tie-in that's so dangerous. They're bankrupt people with charisma, a charisma that pulls people in, but they're not happy to just draw a crowd. False teachers are looking for far more than an audience because they are involvers, enticing others to participate in their emptiness. What does Peter write? They allure. They draw in. They bring you onto the team, and they do this by appealing to carnal desires. Their message does not connect at all to God's truth. Instead, it panders to feelings and sensual instincts. So I want you to recognize that not only are they useless eternally, but are quite charismatic, they're quite enjoyable to listen to, but what makes them enjoyable is that they, they not only want you to listen to them, they now want to draw you in to be a part of the team, and to be part of the team, they now use, and what they say appeals to the carnal side of us. It appeals to worldly lust. It appeals to unrestrained pursuit of worldly pleasure. And just pause. I hope you're not listening to false teachers that are out there. Uh, but if you have heard a false teacher, and, and oftentimes you can hear a lot of them on Sunday morning on TV, uh, you'll find a lot of them preaching then. Uh, but they're also preaching all over the United States in churches from small to large because they'll, they'll preach a message and you'll recognize something about their message. And I'm going to get to this idea that as deceitful as they are, as believers, we're supposed to not be deceived. And that's one of Peter's points that he's driving to. But if you listen to their message, they're always giving permission to do what you want. Be your best you. Live your best life now. Those are statements that tell you they're promoting unrestrained pursuit. They're good. They're charismatic. They'll weave you in, and they'll get you to buy in, and they'll get you to promote what's there, but recognize what they're selling, and it's a lie. It's not God's truth. They do this also by appealing to those struggling 
yet desiring to change. I want you to see who they're going to get. They're getting people who do want to improve, that are seeking self-improvement. One writer says, it is often those overcoming a broken relationship, wrestling with emotional needs, seeking relief from guilt, anxiety, stress, you name it. Who are their audience? Oftentimes, this is not exclusive to that. You might say, well, I have great relationships. I'm not stressed at all, so I should be immune to their charm. No, it just means that oftentimes they're talking to people that are seeking to grow or seeking change. Because remember, he's speaking to the church about people who are talking in church who they need to resist and not give an audience. It is those not necessarily seeking a life the world offers. They're not worldly necessarily from the outside people, yet they're vulnerable to the appeal of having what the world has. These false teachers appeal to the person who says, I don't want to blatantly choose the world, but I really like the things that the world has. And so what do they give? They give them a coat of religious paint to make them feel good about it. How can I pursue the world and feel spiritual about it. That's the gift that the false teacher brings to the table because they involve you in it, because it feels like you're doing something spiritual. It makes you feel like you're improving, but it gives you what you want, which is permission to follow the world, to chase what the world says you can have. It is always permission with a paint of Bible or a paint of religion or a paint of spirituality. So sadly, they can have a dangerous appeal to anyone. It might be those trying to improve, but it plays to let's be fair to ourselves, to all of us. Because we listen to this and we get to have the best of both worlds. The world and religion all in one nice mutual fund and we can just invest in that. And it appeals But there's no excuse, really. I put the word reason, but I think the better word is there's no excuse to be deceived because they are identified. What does the text say? They are the servants of corruption for of whom a man is overcome of the same is he brought in bondage. And so we are to be discerning of what they say. How do you know what they're saying is wrong? Because you're going to know the Bible. That's how you're going to know not by necessarily studying all the falseness of what they say, but by knowing truth, you'll be able to discern it. And at the end of this, I'm going to talk about that all you need to know is basic Bible truth, and you'll be able to discern who a false teacher is. See, they're going to present freedom. They're going to present self-expression with one's physical body and life, but ultimately that is just being enslaved to self. Here's what they're going to preach, though they're not going to blatantly say it. They're going to preach that one can ignore the implication of Christ's love and sacrifice. And what I mean by that is that they're, they're going to say to you that there's no constraining force in the fact that Christ died on the cross and redeemed you. There's no stop to your life. You're not to be changed because God died on the cross for your sins. You're not to alter what you want because of what he's done for you. See, the, the, the false religion that's so appealing is God is a God of love and he loves you and he wants you to live your life. And so just do what you want because he's happy that you're happy. That's a lie. That's, that's false teaching. You can't live that way and claim 
Christ. I want to pause here for a moment and point out how prevalent that is among the church today. Or to be a little bit more personal, how prevalent it may be in our own hearts. How we say, well, God wants me to have what I want. And so, of course, it's okay because God wants me to be happy and this makes me happy and he loves me. And if you love me, you will give me what I want. No, he loves you. So he died on the cross for your sins so that you may be forgiven and have life eternally. He loves you. And so he says your desires are off and they need to be changed. And I think I've said this multiple times. We're not here to be our best us. We're actually here to be like Christ. And as we fade away, then we know we live the life that God's called us to. Yet, as we throw off the, the supposed confines of being God's slave, God never hides that, by the way. We serve him. He is our master. In Leviticus, we're going to be looking at that uh, through the year of Jubilee. And, and part of uh, the end of Leviticus chapter I think it's 25, it talks about why does an Israelite indentured servant have to be freed? Because it says, because you're my servants, you serve me. And so understanding that as they say, we need to throw off the confines of being God's slave, they find themselves incarcerated to the cruelest and vilest of masters, sin, self, and Satan. Because you're going to dive into bondage to someone because here's the reality. There's only freedom in Christ. He frees you from the bondage of sin so that you can serve him. If you're not serving him, you are serving sin. That's, there's no other servant. You're, in the end, not the master of your own identity or your own life. You are at the bequest of sin and Satan, or you're going to be serving your Savior. And so with a modicum of biblical discernment, I put applying basic scriptural truth you can see exactly what and who rules over their lives and recognize they are only pitching entrenched bondage to what condemns for all eternity. Peter is not soft-pedaling this to the church. He's not going to the church and saying, hey, be careful, there's false teachers out there, and I'm going to come and I'm going to point them out to you because you really do need me to tell you who they are. What he's saying is, you know who they are, apply biblical knowledge to what they're teaching, and what they're teaching will tell you that they are liars, they are frauds, that they are bankrupt, that they are unredeemed. See, these audacious deceivers are promoting a message that appeals to the base instincts of humanity, a message that seems to provide an avenue of self-improvement without submission to the one and true authority. They're always giving you an option away from Christ. I remember hearing one of these false teachers talking about their church and how every religion can come in and when they hear the preaching, they all feel welcome and actually went out of his way to say a Buddhist could come in and they could worship with us and they would just feel great. That's a very easy indication that he is a false teacher. Why? Because a Buddhist should walk in and hear the gospel and either be confronted, angry, and walk away or repent and believe. When suddenly everything is about self-improvement without submission to the one and true authority, you recognize the lie that they are. They preach a message of self-fulfillment. 
self-gratification and self-realization. None of these are promised in Scripture. We're not here to fulfill ourselves. We're not here to gratify ourselves. We're not here to realize ourselves, which is what the world is talking about. And if you leave it unchecked, we are running rampantly in the direction of that same self-expression. Though if you read history, you'll realize that the Greeks and Romans engaged in a lot of this perversion and self-expression as well. Why? Because they feel like we should be fulfilled. That's why the message always is changing. But when you preach that message, it is a message of slavery to sin, self, and Satan. Their message, though, sadly pulls people in, turning an audience into proclaimers and so multiplying the lie. Yet there's no excuse for being deceived. They may be enticing, They may be engaging, but Scripture clearly identifies them. So I put here, don't become part of their audience and don't become part of their promotion. You might sit here and say, I don't know. Kenny, maybe I have promoted a false teacher. Stop. Maybe I like to listen to this person. Stop. It doesn't matter how appealing they are. They're dangerous. They're deceivers. They're liars. They're promoting slavery to the wrong master. Because their lives are a waste. Their lives are set for destruction, which is seen ultimately in their pitfall. This is verses 20 through 22. Uh, The reality is they respond in a twisted way to truth. And so these verses, I think uh, there's some throughout Scripture. Hebrews 6 talks about it. In Matthew, uh, Christ and the Sermon on the Mount talks about people saying, Lord, Lord. And he says, I never knew you. Uh, There's people that apostatize, and you see it Hebrews 6, or some other ones in the New Testament as well. And what I find saddest about these verses is the reality that they've heard truth. They've been encountering truth, but they respond in a twisted way to that truth. It says here, for if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in other words, they're involved in the church and are hearing on a consistent basis Truth. They understand who Christ is from a, from a knowledge standpoint. And they are again entangled therein into the world and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed in her wallowing in the mire. And we see tragically that they are hardened. They're listening to truth, and it bounces off a stone heart. In Matthew 12, 43 through 45, Jesus gives quite a poignant illustration of the consequences of this, saying of someone freed from an unclean spirit without true change or true conversion. So as Christ was giving this illustration, it's a beautiful picture, or sad, but it's very poignant. It it, it makes it very clear that you can't affect the change in yourself and that what may seem like a change only results in worse punishment or damnation. It says there, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. But no one's in it. Notice that no Holy Spirit is dwelling in this house. 
It goes on, Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. And he's preaching to those Pharisaical uh, Pharisees and Pharisaical believers that are cleaning up their life. They have a thousand rules and regulations, so they don't look like our false teachers today. They don't look like the false teachers from Peter's time, but they're still false teachers, and they are making and affecting what seems to be change, but it's not true change, or it's not true conversion. And what is the end? It's worse than what they started with. These false teachers in Peter's time, and, and they link directly to our time as well, uh, they reference knowledge about Jesus. They emphasize their knowledge of it but then ultimately went blatantly against it. They were unredeemed even though they had this knowledge. As MacArthur states, such knowledge is an accurate awareness about Christ. We're not denying that they may know about Christ, but it's not a saving knowledge of him. Many false teachers, you'll hear them talk and I hear this said all the time, like, well, they're a false teacher. But you know, when I hear them talk about the gospel, they state it clearly. Well, they might state the gospel clearly because they've heard it clearly and they have an accurate awareness of what the gospel is, but it doesn't make them redeemed. It doesn't make what they preach and talk about every Sunday or when they talk to their people truth. No, they have an accurate awareness of Christ, but they don't have a saving knowledge of him. I put as a side caution, highlighted in yellow, Beware how flippantly you make someone into a believer because they can recount knowledge about Jesus Christ. There are a host of people that you talk to that can tell you about Jesus Christ. They can tell you about what it means to die on the cross and be forgiven of sins. They can recount the story. What matters, though, is their and our personal saving knowledge of him, and that reality will be evident in your life. Because these false teachers, they're apostates rising up from within the church, yet rejectors ultimately of the gospel truth we are called to proclaim. They end up using the church for their own means, parasites that drag with them as many as possible. The outcome of this apostasy is greater condemnation. They're held accountable for their privilege in hearing and knowing the way of righteousness, of knowing the holy commandment, and then turning away from it. And I just want to put a pause. We want, as we, as we talk about Easter and reaching people, and we want people to come to church, and we want them to hear the truth, uh, but as they harden themselves to the truth, if, if that's the result in their life, we see that people that hear the way of righteousness and the holy commandment and turn away from it, they get harder and harder. And I just, just in a, for a second, think about someone you know that, that maybe comes to church even infrequently and doesn't know Christ as their Savior. What and how do they talk? How does their vernacular kind of harden to where they find a way to build a wall against truth? And we realize Scripture gives warning about this. The idea of apostasy, of people who hear and commit to something potentially, even publicly, yet really they don't believe, they turn away from it. Sadly, we, we look at them, sadly we realize they are unchanged. They are unconverted. And here we're given a background of two animals. 
Two animal analogies, both animals, by the way, that were considered unclean by the Jews. Now, as we look at these illustrations, I think we need to pause and make sure we remove our Western culture from this. So as you hear about the dog, remove from your mind your precious pooch, the dog that you shampoo and pamper and carry around and coddle, one that you treat better than your children, whatever it is. That's not who this is. There was no shampoo dog running around the streets. These were animals were scavengers and recognizes not only were they hustling for food in the garbage and refuse, they were carriers of disease. And when you see the word dog, how do you need emotionally respond to them? Compare them to how you would respond to a rat. How do you see a rat? How do you, if you saw a rat in your house, how would you respond? That's how they viewed a dog. I remembered it has been about a month or two. I was backing out of my driveway and in the gravel portion of my driveway, for the first time in my life, I saw a dead rat. I knew it wasn't a mouse because it was way too big. Uh, so as a good neighbor, I chucked it in my neighbor's yard because he could learn a lot. Just kidding. I didn't, I didn't do that. <laughs> As a good dad, I showed my kids and told them not to touch it and get rid of it so the dogs don't get it. But think rat when you see dog. Now, next, get the idea of bacon out of your mind. We hear pig and we smell bacon sizzling in the pan. And I see I've lost 50% of the crowd right there as they start salivating and eyes glaze over. Uh, Pigs didn't always bring that type of reaction. They were seen as dirty animals in biblical times. And again, Jews did not consume pork. I put as an illustration to help us see this. So the dog is a rat in, in disease carrying and scavenging. Uh, I put here, I love bacon. I really do. Um, I will eat it right out of the pan. I'll burn my fingers to get bacon. I just, I'm committed to it. Um, but I rarely eat pork while traveling, especially when I'm in a remote regions of the world. And I want to explain why that is. It's been, I think, 10 or 12 years I was traveling in a remote town in Central America with a group of guys. It was on the coast. And so uh, this group of people that we were working with, uh, all their houses were on stilts. Um, Indoor plumbing was not a normal commodity for them. So what do you have is you have outhouses. Because the ebb and flow of the tide not only did the houses unstilt, but interestingly enough, the outhouses were also unstilt, um, exposed on the bottom. Farm animals roamed freely. And if you know pigs at all, you know they love gross, damp, muddy areas. These special areas remain damp, and the pigs love to root around constantly. After you see that, and you sit down at a restaurant in that town, and someone says, would you like cerdo? You want pork? Absolutely not. I was with a group of guys who were dumb enough to order pork, and I'm looking and thinking, I saw what that pig ate, and you just, you just go to town on that pork. I eat chicken fried, and I just ignore the fact where the chickens are because I have to eat something. But the fact is, when you understand how gross a pig can be and how filthy it can be, you get a grip of what Peter is trying to say, and, and then recognize what the illustration is, you have a dog who is throwing up what is inside of him, right? That illness that is there is, is, is vomited out. And then what does the dog do with that corruption? It reconsumes it. And so what you're seeing is the dog is illustrating inner corruption and the return to that. And then the pig is all polished up. 
Now, in my opinion, a pig is only polished up when it's cooking as bacon, right? That's the final stage of a pig. But when you clean a pig, and I've never raised pigs, but I, I can envision and talk to some people that have, pigs go right back to the mud. And so what you see is no matter how clean someone gets on the outside, they will get dirty again. And so who is a false teacher? It is someone who returns to inner corruption, no matter if they get rid of it. It seems they they got rid of it, but they go back and eat it up. And then the pig who is washed and cleaned then goes and wallows in the mud again. It gets dirty on the outside. These two animals are often used in the New Testament. Christ used them even in Matthew 7, 6, when he says, give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Right? Don't feed the dog something because they're just going to get rid of it and they're going to go right back to corruption. And neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. In other words, they're going to destroy, they're going to corrupt inside and out no matter what. And I want us to recognize something as we walk through those illustrations. They're not just neat little statements that Peter wants to make at the end. He is zeroing in on the intensity of what he he feels about these false teachers. He's not cloaking his comparison. They, he says, these false teachers return to inner corruption, and no matter how neat and clean they may seem to get, they will wallow in filth again and do so fairly quickly. One writer notes, false teachers are the, I would say, poster childs of spiritual uncleanness and smut. They are the definition of it. And you might say, but they don't look that way to me. Yeah, it's just a clean pig right now. Looks like the dog is getting rid of all of its bad stuff. It'll eat it again. That's what Peter is saying, is, is recognizing that you may be catching the pig after it's washed. You might be catching the dog after it threw up, but ultimately it'll read the vomit and it's going to wallow in the mud. These people are going to return to the worst they can be. Spiritual uncleanness and smut. And I hope we can grasp the seriousness of their pitfall, because that's what I want us to bring us back to, is what Peter is trying to show the church is that this is not some confusion or slight variance. This is not people hung up on preferences and and those kind of things that the church gets embroiled in, sadly gets embroiled in, that has no bearing biblically on it. This is no slight difference. These people and their teaching are condemned and originates in the realm of wickedness. These people are hardened and unchanged, and they're destined for an eternity in hell. Be aware of this reality. Be aware of how dangerously deceptive they are and how enticing they can be. Uh, Take to heart the warning of 1 Corinthians 10, 12, which says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Don't be arrogant about this. Don't feel that this deception won't get me. I go all the way back to the charisma of who they are and the charisma of their message. It is very appealing, and we have to take biblical truth and apply it to it. This is no casual matter, and I say again, it is not a slight confusion. Ultimately, these false teachers and their audience, followers, and promoters are denying the authority of God. They're denying the lordship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the end is hell and forever damnation. They face the ultimate pitfall. Or as Peter is making clear, they're in it. I want to close with that quote I mentioned uh, from a commentator, John MacArthur, one that hopefully gives us pause and I hope turns our mind to self-examination and reflection. 
He writes this, Contemporary Christianity, sadly, contains many people like the ones Peter describes in this passage. They have sought personal improvement and moral reformation in their quest for spiritual and religious experience. Many of them have become teachers, preachers, and self-styled prophets within the professed church. Tragically, like dirty dogs or unclean pigs, they eventually return to their old lifestyles, rejecting the only one who can truly reform them. Those who become spiritual leaders are in reality false teachers motivated by their own selfish pursuits and sensual desires. In view of their appalling character and damning influence, Peter's warning is clear. Stay away from false teachers and expose them. Believers are to listen to the true apostles and prophets, not the false ones. I would add to this, believers must be embedded in God's word. You must know God's word. I'm going to challenge you. If you're listening to someone who seems okay, but seems off, they're off. Stop. It's not worth it. Find someone else to listen to. There's a million things you can listen to that are good. Stop flirting with false teachers because what Peter is trying to say is they're frauds. They are corrupt inside and outside. They may look clean today. They may have gotten rid of some corruption yesterday, but they'll ultimately eat it up again, and they're going to get wallowing in the mud yet again. We are not to flirt with this. By our flirtation, we only help promote their lie to others that might get caught up in this. So the warning is clear. Stay away from false teachers and expose them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word, to dive in and understand more about our role of what we need to do, that we have been given your word, we've been given clear direction, and though all of us are at varying maybe levels of, of understanding every nuance of the Greek or whatever may be in there in English, we all are capable of understanding the truth of Scripture that we are equipped as believers to read your word, to understand what truth is, and then we're able to look at what others are teaching and promoting and apply that truth to them. Not look for a nugget of honesty that might be in what they say, but instead see if what they're saying is truth. And if we notice that they're false teachers, frauds and liars that are there, that instead of enjoying what may be enjoyable to us, the empty calories, we'll instead stand for truth and stand for scripture and expose them for who they are. Give us the courage and the discernment to see lies that crop up in our own heart. How we will oftentimes go to scripture and become a false teacher to ourselves, finding ways to explain away a verse, finding ways to take a verse and make it work for our life and our direction, which is the definition of a false teacher. Grabbing your truth and manipulating it for our own priority and our own premium. Lord, convict our hearts as we open your word, I hope daily and individually, that as we read it and study it, you'll guide us that we will confront our lives, that we will not be the hardened and the unchanged, but instead your word will soften our hearts and that we will seek you in obedience. That we will not believe this world's lie that you can have whatever self-fulfillment or self-realization uh, that is thrown in front of you, but instead recognize that our goal is to glorify our Lord and Savior. 
that our life will be a light and salt in this world, that we will shine brightly for you, that we can serve our master, our Lord and Savior, and not serve the wicked master of sin, self, and Satan. Give us that discernment and give us that fortitude and strength uh, to follow you all the days of our life. In your precious and holy name, amen.